You know, there's all this talk these days of the new rules. How are the new rules affecting the game? You know, the pitch clock rules, the shift rules, the the batter minimum, the, the zombie runner, which which I hate the zombie runner's the worst rule ever, man, for it sucks for that one. Uh, all this talk of new rules, you know, you can't listen to a baseball podcast anymore without hearing new rules. You can't flip on a TV show or broadcast and they're talking about how big the bases are, you know. Manfred has yet to implement the rule that I really want to see. Um, I'll liken the rule to a golden snitch in uh, Quidditch in the Harry Potter universe. There should be a little tiny little bucket in or like a little hole or, or a little, I don't know, something in like dead center field in every stadium and if you hit a home run through that, the game should just be over and you should win. Uh, how, like how that wouldn't almost never happen. Like you, like you put it out there and you make it slightly bigger than the baseball, like a, like a ski ball type hole where it's, it's just big enough for the baseball to get in, but it has to kind of get in perfectly or almost perfectly to even go into the hole. If you slap that in center field, in every ballpark, so let's say, I don't know, let's say it's 400 and, let's give it 420 to 430 feet-ish. There's just this little little place in the center field where the ball can, can go in and the game's over. Now that is a rule. Now that is excitement. Imagine you're down, ten, you know, you're down 10 runs in the bottom of the ninth. It's 10 to 0. And... And you crank one to dead center, right in the hole. Game over. You win. Like, come on, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Well, Manfred hates fun. Is is all I'm hearing when he's not implementing rules like that. Uh, what about a metal bat home run derby, Rob? Ever thought of that one? Just go put dudes. I would recommend not having fans in the stadium or even just doing it. Um, not in a stadium, but if you're going to do it at any stadium, it should be Coors, but theoretically a metal bat home run derby, maybe you, you go to the ocean, uh, like the, um, I want to say they're in the, in the Bahamas or, or Puerto Rico, uh, they do a home run derby down there in, in summer ball into the ocean, do that with metal bats and, and measure, just see how far like Giancarlo Stanton can hit a baseball, uh, with a metal bat. And I think it'd be pretty far and they'd hit it pretty hard. Manfred just hates fun. He doesn't want to implement fun rules. The rules are all just, eh, whatever, you know. But anyways, welcome back to the Chaos Ball Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Another not groundbreakingly statistic-heavy podcast here. Just what's been going on the past week, you know? What have the Mariners been doing? What's been going on in the MLB? But first, we got to get the Chaos Moment of the Week and the Baseball Reference Player of the Week and so I'm just going to jump right into it, even though I already jumped into things with a cold open again, throwing that at you. Uh, but but there's a certain player, there's a certain type of player I look for on Baseball Reference, and it's players that played in the 1800s and have silly little names, which there are a lot of them. Last week's, if you do recall, it was Butts Wagner, who he didn't play, I don't think he played in the 1800s. Um... Honus Wagner's older brother, you know, we discussed Butts Wagner. This player this week, there's a little bit more career there. He he was a little bit more of a baseball player than, than Butts was. And this man's name is Charles Gardner Radborn, better known as Old Hoss Radborn. I'll say that again. Old Hoss Radborn. And if you go look this guy up on Baseball Reference... And I'll probably put this out a picture of him on Twitter uh, after this episode drops. He looks like a guy who'd be called Old Hoss Radborn. I don't know how else to describe it. Look at his baseball reference photo and tell me that isn't Old Hoss Radborn. Like he embodies everything Old Hoss Radborn stands for. Uh, Old Hoss Radborn, he only played for uh, a decade. He played a decade. He played from 1880 to like 1891 ish. And he's in the Hall of Fame. He has 75 career war. He won the pitching triple crown. Oh, he's a pitcher, by the way. He won the pitching triple crown at one point. 
a very decorated career pre-1900. I mean, there's a lot of these guys um, who are in the Hall of Fame who played in pre-1900 who nobody has no idea who they are. But old Haas Radborn, he's from New York. Uh, he made his MLB debut for the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, he went on to then play after the Buffalo Bisons for a year to the Providence Grays uh, and the Boston Bean Eaters. But the Grays, the Providence Grays is where he, uh, that was his prime. Uh, his prime for four years or five five years was on the Providence Grays. And then he made his way to the Boston Bean Eaters, uh, Boston Reds, since then Cincinnati Reds to end his career. Quite a bit of career highlights for this guy. But really, um, what's exciting about him is the, the off-the-field uh, uh, stuff I would love to talk about after this. So, let's just go through some of the career highlights. Um, he won the pitching triple crown. He pitched a no-hitter on July 25th, 1883. Uh, he was inducted into Hall of Fame in 1939 by the Veterans Committee. His best pro season was on the Providence Grays in 19... Or, not 19... 1884 uh he went you ready for this one he started 73 baseball games that year he went 60 and 12 so one no decision in there um 60 wins is uh still the record for most wins by a pitcher in a single season and that will absolutely never be broken guys don't even start more than 30 games these days you know he went 16 and 12 that year uh, with a 1.38 ERA and 441 strikeouts with a 205 ERA plus. And before you hear me tell you how many innings he pitched this year with 73 starts, just guess, put a number in your head real quick. He pitched 678 and two thirds innings. This season went 60 and 12, absolutely dominant, an absolutely dominant, dominant pitcher. But really, let's get into to why old old Hosh Radborn is more than more than just a pitcher. First of all, again, his name was old Hoss Radborn. Like I would never want to walk up to the plate and see, oh, oh man, old Hoss is up there for the Providence uh, he was probably Providence's only pitcher. I mean, he threw 73 starts. Um, so after his, his illustrious career, you know, he gets inducted in the Hall of Fame in 1939, which um, posthumously, of course, because Old Haas only lived to the age of 42 and died in uh, 1897. But Old Haas, he, he's responsible for not only the record and wins in a single season in baseball, right? He actually apparently is known for being the first person photographed gesturing the middle finger. And if you look this up or go to his Wikipedia page in, in 1886, an image captured of him, quote, flipping off a member of the New York Giants in a team photo. Look up this freaking photo. It is hilarious. He's got his hand on a player's shoulder in front of him, and he's staring right at the camera like old Haas always does with his great mustache. And he's just flipping the bird. And this is apparently, he's known as being the first person photographed gesturing the middle finger. So not the first person ever to do the middle finger, potentially, you know, pr likely not the case, but the first one photographed doing it. Also, allegedly, there's speculation that Old Haas might be the namesake for Charlie Horse for some reason. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um. I just, I, it's, he's a Hall of Famer in baseball, but that's, that should be second on his accolades list. Being the first person pictured giving the middle finger is goat status, in my opinion. I don't want to hear Barry Bonds, Mike Trout. I don't want to hear those names get brought up again in goat status. I'll bring up old Haas Radborn. Um, how his life, his life after baseball, though, it was also kind of fun. He opened up a billiard parlor and saloon in Bloomington, Illinois. He was seriously injured in a hunting accident soon after retirement, in which he lost an eye. And then he died when he was 42. But that's old Haas Radborn. So if you want to go learn more, look him up. But that is old Haas himself. And really um, coming out strong, coming out strong with that old Haas Radborn. Baseball reference player of the week. Shout out to you, 
old Haas. I will always remember you as the greatest baseball player of all time. It shouldn't be called the Sonic Gun. It should be called the old Haas, in my opinion. My opinion. Uh, but let's move on to the Chaos Ball moment of the week. This one is... This one was pretty easy. There were quite a few chaotic moments in baseball this weekend. But the most chaotic uh, is that Ronald Acuna stole second base. Literally. Literally stole second base. He, he gets a great jump. He, he gets in there in the base. He... He makes a headfirst slide, and then old base pops out, and he's just holding on to it. Um, uh, should there be a rule for this? Like, is this? Uh, should, no, I'm trying. I'm thinking. I didn't think about this at all prior. It's just popping into my brain now. One, it was a pretty chaotic moment. I mean, he ripped the base out of second base, literally stole it. You don't see that too often, but, um automatic it's not it shouldn't be an automatic out but what if i don't know the base moves off like are there rules in place if a base just pops out like he's still holding on to it so technically like what if he just continued running he runs all the way home with the base in his hands and and the catcher tags him way before he hits home plate but the ump's like well i don't know man he was he was touching the base the whole time is it a loophole in the rules? I'm sure there's some addendum in the rules that say you can't pull a base out and run with it. But if there isn't a rule, players should do this more often. It's a free run hack. So that's what they should do. <laughs> but that was the chaos moment of the week for baseball. There were there were other chaotic moments. There was like a weird Nabil Krismat pitch violation on like him and the batter for some reason. I don't know. The pitch clock violations are getting pretty funny with just how umpires handle them. But that is the moment I chose, just because it was it was chaotic enough, but simple. Um, and just Acuna stealing a base is just pretty funny to think about. Um, and then him running to home with it is even funnier to think about. And I wish he had done that. Uh, kind of upset that he didn't. But this uh, this is this is mostly what did the Mariners do? What did the Mariners do this week? What I wrote down, and I I take notes throughout the week of of stuff to talk about. I'm a professional. I. Do not get paid to do this, but I'm a professional. I wrote down Julio for my Mariners recap of the week. Uh, I just, I don't know, man. I think Julio is pretty good at baseball. Julio Rodriguez I'm talking about, not to be mistaken with any other Mariners-related Julio. Uh, but he's he's pretty good. I mean, he hit a, hit a dinger against Cleveland the other day. Oh, I am recording this um, very soon after the Sunday afternoon loss to Cleveland, but... Uh, won the series overall, but uh, Julio's been he's been good. Looks good in the center, stolen a couple bases, um, hitting the ball really hard, doing everything he's he did last year from May on. Um, like I talked about, he was top, you know, ten player in baseball from May on. So he's he's looking like he didn't completely forget how to play baseball in the offseason, which is a good sign for a team that just resigned to him to to a quite lucrative contract, but. I also wrote down, if we want to go Mariners moment of the week, I, I, Luis Castillo, he's not the Mariners moment of the week himself, but, oh man, he's amazing, isn't he? Isn't he just great? Uh, hasn't given up a run yet. It's looked absolutely dominant. Uh, everything we've, we've wanted from him, obviously only two starts, not, Running, running to assumptions or conclusions here, but like, come on, we know Luis Castillo is really good. Um, and just watching him dominate is pretty awesome. I've talked about this ad nauseum, especially last episode. Just having him on the Mariners is what what a treat, what a real treat. Um, but he uh, had a sick play against Hunter Renfro. Man, a hard ground ball bounced up the middle. Luis Castillo, no look behind the back. Wow, got him, got him out of first. He Hunter Renfro, Hunter Renfro. Because if you uh, have forgotten somehow, uh, it was a long time ago. It was last week. I talked about it on this episode, and it made the rounds, obviously, on the internet and baseball. The ridiculous Hunter Renfro no look catch. And uh, Luis Castillo said, "You know that's cool and all, but I can be in a good defensive position and make a no look catch. Can you say that, Hunter? And he can't. He can't." Uh, it was a pretty sweet play, Luis Castillo. Really cool. 
Very cool dude. Certifiably a very, very good pitcher. That's all I have to say about Luis Castillo. Again, I'm keeping it light. I'm keeping it light. I'm not... I th- I'm thinking after... After April's over, I'll I'll delve into some pre- preliminary statistical analysis for you on, on some of the players. But right now, surface level. Very surface level. I'm enjoying watching the Mariners play baseball and Luis Castillo pitch. Uh, Logan Gilbert's splitter. He unveiled his splitter a little bit in his most recent start, and it looks pretty good. It looks like a viable pitch. It doesn't look like he's going to throw it too often. Um, He got, I don't have the Savant page pulled up. I know he got at least one whiff on it, maybe two. Um, But if he, oh my God, the splitter gives him like an unlimited ceiling. Like if we're just talking ceiling, like the very pinnacle of what Logan Gilbert could be with the splitter is a dominant sign award winner because you have his breaking stuff that's come along. His fastball, again, he lives and dies by the fastball. You have his breaking stuff that has improved quite a bit since he first made his debut. His curveball is better, his slider, um, he's locating that better. Uh, the changeup, I don't know if he's going to use the changeup a whole lot now that he has a splitter, but similar to the splitter where he started working on it um, last year, didn't throw it a whole lot, but it looked, you know, a good, a different look from him when he threw the changeup. But now with the splitter, the splitter and the and the fastball, oh baby, because um, now he he lives fastball up in the zone, and for good reason. Um, he's not throwing you know ninety nine miles an hour. He throws a hard fastball, but it's not the hardest. So he lives in the top of the zone. You don't want to put like a ninety six mile an hour fastball at the bottom of the zone because if you mislocate it and it touches the plate on the bottom of the zone anywhere near the middle of the plate. A lot of guys like Mike Trout, but also just a lot of guys love hitting fastballs down in this league. Like it's it's not a very hard pitch to hit, um, unless it's you know like a Hunter Green, like hundred mile an hour fastball or Degrom or something. Um, but and if you mislocate the fastball up in the zone and it touches the zone, it's just hard to get around on. Like everyone, like you see, it's hard to get around on. Way better pitch to accidentally miss. And, and leave touching the plate a little bit is the high fastball compared to a low fastball um, for a lot of hitters at least. But with the splitter, and if the splitter comes along, and if the splitter's looking good, I mean, will he start working more down in the zone with the fastball? If he can locate the fastball down in the zone and tunnel that with a splitter, oh man, like that is dev- that's a devastating pitch combo with the breaking stuff looming that sweeps away from right-handed hitters. Um, and then also just like, you know, he can locate the fastball in the top of the zone pretty well. Oh, it'd be nasty. Um, but that being said, that's a ceiling. That's it's, it's also, it's a long way to go. It's a very new pitch. Uh, I think he'll have to probably figure out, um, how to disguise it, uh, to not make it look like he's throwing the splitter all the time. Cause I think he can, he can probably work on just the, the arm angle and making it look exactly like his fastball before it, it dives down, you know, six to 10 inches, whatever. Uh, it's got a long way to go, but like seeing him just like pick up a splitter and throw it in the game. And it looked pretty good. is is very encouraging. Like he clearly works very hard and is very talented that Logan Gilbert. Uh, he's looked fine. He, I mean, he's looked all right. I think, uh, I don't know. Start of the season, it's like impossible to judge starting pitchers unless they're completely terrible or like dominant and there's a track record of being either one of those things. If there's no need to overreact for position players for a while, there's no need to overreact for pitchers until they throw like 10 starts, which takes a long time. Uh, so not not really worried about Logan. I mean, his stuff looks pretty good. I think... Um, I think it's probably important how they manage his innings early this year, just so he can throw the whole year again, like he did last year. Um, but I, I think he'll probably get in a groove, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And then we'll see what that new splitter keeps looking like. Cause I'm quite intrigued by it now coming off. Well, I guess the angel series, I, I don't have much to say about the angel series. They dropped two of three at home to the angels and then win two of three against the guardians in Cleveland. And dropping two of three at home to the Angels is unfortunate, but the Angels, 
as of right now, fully healthy, are a pretty solid baseball team, and that's okay. Uh, the one-run loss on, on Wednesday the 5th was, was a little tough. Um, got dominated on Tuesday, 11-2, and then 3-7 to on the Monday. Um, I mean, the Angels are playing pretty good baseball right now. Like, they're, they're, they look, you know, baseline at least better than they, they were last year. But, um, it's tough. Oh, I said we lost the 11 to my, we won the 11 to uh, that was, that was a, that was a great game. Uh, Teo, Teo home run, two home runs. I mean, he finally has gotten on the board. Um, that I guess will segue. This is a very chaotic episode. I am bouncing around. I'm living up to my, my podcast name. Um, but no, ta- losing two of three to the angels at home is never ideal, but it's okay. It's early. Like, uh, I think losing to a, a team that's the Angels level of, of good, similar on par with how good the Mariners are, and whatever, it's fine. It's it's so early in the season. Uh but this week we did see Teo Hernandez hit two home runs, uh finally on the board as a Mariner. He's looked just I mean, his approach at the plate hasn't changed all year. Like he's a veteran. We know how he hits. His aggressiveness, his approach, nothing has changed in the slump. Like, that's not, like, he's a professional. Uh, um, and he kept swinging it at good pitches, and it's paid off. And he had two pretty sizable home runs, too. Like, when he connects with the ball, it absolutely jumps off his bat. And it's pretty awesome to see. Uh, but that was very encouraging this week from Tasker Hernandez. Uh, he had a tough defensive play today in... Uh, in right field, that would have won them the game. Hey, it was a difficult play. All right, listen. He makes a play, and the Mariners win the ball game and have the tiebreaker for a wild card spot potentially later in the year against the Guardians. It's tough that he dropped it. It was a tough one. It, I think it's even tougher on the coaching staff to not just throw Sam Haggerty out there in right field instead of Teo. Because Teo, I mean, he's played pretty solid defense, but like, I'll, I'll rather have Haggerty out there if i'm being quite honest like just as a defensive replacement but you win some you lose some that was a tough game to lose what else this week did we see uh on the topic of hitters and new players colton wong uh is is getting a lot of hate online you know i mean it makes sense he's he hasn't hit much i think he has two hits in a mariners uniform He's looked a little frustrated at the plate, but similar to Teoscar, it doesn't look like his approach has really changed. He's still swinging at good pitches. Um, just hasn't quite got, like, just just simply hasn't been good. Uh, just hasn't gotten going. Still not super worried about him. Uh, I think it's he's still an upgrade for Adam Frazier. I don't care what anyone says, uh, and I'm not worried. I mean, we're, we're week two here. It's fine. He's just in a in a big big slump. He's looked a little frustrated at the plate, missing some of these pitches. But uh, Pat, like today looked better. He had a hit today. He had a sack fly today. He connected with. Uh, he'll he'll be fine. And then Jerry Kelnick, man, what a good start to the year for J.K. He has looked just better at the plate recently. Uh, a good start to the year for him, especially just for his confidence. Uh, I say to not overreact as a fan to what guys are doing right now. It's hard to not overreact with Jared Kelnick just because there's so much hinging on it on this season for him personally. Um, but confidence levels, at least for him, coming out of the gate a couple weeks in and not hitting below 100, in fact, hitting uh, around 300, great for his confidence. He's uh, made a great, great play in the outfield today and has looked solid out there has been aggressive on the base path. Uh, swing looks good. Really the huge, the you know, hugest, the only oh, that's a word. Is it? Uh, the biggest difference is just the approach, man. The biggest difference has been the approach at the plate. He just looks, I, I tweeted it during the game today. He just looks like a major league hitter. You know, he, he is, laying off bad pitches he's putting good swings on pitches in the zone he's he's toughing out at bats he's like fouling pitches off and then he's he's waiting for the pitch um to swing at and whether or not 
he gets a hit or not, the process is looking so, so, so much better. It's crazy. Like watching him hit, it's not like watching a, a little, a little lamb prospect try to put something together at the major league level. Like at least the past couple of years have where it's like, oh man, it's just like, you know, you can spike a couple curveballs in the dirt and he'll get frustrated after swinging at one of them and probably end up striking out in the at bat. But this year, He's laying off good pitches. He's swinging at good pitches. He looks calm up there. He, it, just, it just looks like he's trusting his approach, too. He's trusting everything he's worked on this offseason, everything him and the coaches uh, have worked on. He's he's trusting his swing as well. Uh, and it's still the case of when he hits the ball. He hits the ball pretty hard. He's a strong, strong lad uh, and drives a lot of power through his through his legs and his big biceps. Um uh, and it's working. It's working so far this season. He's he's taking balls the other way. He's using the whole field. He just looks like a major league hitter, and that is a breath of fresh air so far to start the season. For all of Colton Wong's woes, we have Jared Kelnick looking like a major league baseball player, which is great. That's fantastic, and I'm happy for him. I hope he continues like this because nobody should really expect crazy numbers from him, but again, it's like all we're expecting is like at least league average production from him from the left fielder spot and he's doing it so go off jk i mean clearly putting a lot of work this offseason uh and uh approach is good swing is better and still uh hitting the ball pretty hard when he when he hits it so very encouraged from jared kelnick there Uh, and then the bullpen we saw a lot of the bullpen today in particular yesterday if you're listening to this on monday uh, game three in Cleveland, uh, lost in the 13th inning, which means we saw a lot of the bullpen, uh, especially just against Cleveland. It was, we saw a lot of the bullpen in general. Uh, both of these teams just absolutely cannot play normal baseball games against each other. They have to be close. There has to be some stupid shit that happens. Um, it's just how it goes playing this team. It's how it was last year. It's how it's been starting the year. Almost like it's almost too on the nose how close we play this team and how expected it is that these teams are just going to play really frustrating close games against each other. I mean, starting the year, we win 3-0. We lose 9-4, to and that's the biggest loss this year. And then we beat them, or we lose 2-0, we lose 6-5. And then we go to Cleveland, we win 5-3, 3-2, and then lose 7-6 in the 13th. Like, come on, dude, that is just... Every time we play this team, heart rate's up. I I really hope we don't have to play them in the playoffs. It would that series would tear my heart to shreds, dude. But the the there's the bullpen management discourse is back on uh, Mariners Twitter and circling the internet. I would just like to say it's it's very difficult to manage a bullpen, and it's very interesting to see how teams and managers do it early in the year. Uh, because things almost went awry in the win on Saturday against the Guardians because of potential bullpen mismanagement. I really don't think it was, to be honest with you, because you had you had Marco give you almost a quality start, five and two-thirds. Um, you have Penn get out of a, a tough jam there in the sixth inning. Uh, you bring Matt Feste in, can't locate, can't do anything. You bring Gabe Spear in, which people weren't happy about, and then you close the game with Paul Seawald, who looked pretty good, but... People were calling for like Brash or Munoz in those spots. Both of them had thrown innings in the previous game. And I saw people pointing that out and was like, whatever. I mean, I mean, it's it's true. Neither, none of those guys who pitched the day before threw more than 20 pitches in an inning. So if you really needed them, yeah, you you could throw them in that spot. But really, like, it's game two of the series. You have these other guys, and they they limped their way to that win. Uh, really, Festo was the one who almost almost screwed up. I mean, he gave up a run, and then just the, he had to get pulled after um, a, a few batters, and only got through uh, a third of an inning. And it's tough to manage a bullpen, and I'm sure they didn't want to use either of you know any of the really good guys they used the day before, just because you then have the game tomorrow which was yesterday's game which look they had to use those guys again you got to look at the future you got to just weigh your options it's all about opportunity cost when you're when you're 
throwing a bullpen out there because you want to use uh, the least amount of guys possible to win the game. You want to make sure you don't overwork guys, especially earlier in the season. In a case like this where you're winning late, you want to hold on to the lead, but you also want to have some good arms for late in the game tomorrow because you know you'll play a close game against this team again. Um, I don't know, man. People are very critical of Scott's bullpen management. I think it could be better, but I also think every manager's could be better. I think a lot of the time with bullpen management, people knock the results, not the process. I think most of the time, the process is pretty good. Uh, most of the time, I, I trust major league teams and their process of managing their bullpen is solid, especially with a team like the Mariners, who have proven that uh, they both, A, have a good bullpen and develop good bullpen arms, and B, know how to manage the bullpen because their bullpen wouldn't be nearly as good if they weren't managing the guy's innings, workload, like matchups, what what have you. So I would generally trust the teams and their management. I do think it's more just like it's a reliever. Like they don't get much of a sample. You don't, a guy comes in for one inning gives, and gives up the lead and he, fa- he faces five batters, gives up the lead late and it's, he might be lights out the rest of the month, but people will remember that one when he blew that game and his ERA will reflect it. Uh, because they don't throw that many innings. But being a reliever is pretty tough. You're under a lot of scrutiny. And I don't frankly think a lot of the guys deserve it. Now, Festa clearly was not good in that game. Could not. He, he in a couple of his appearances this year, while few, just uh, didn't look like he could locate his his pitches. His slider didn't look as good, as as elite as it was um, towards the end of the year last year, he couldn't really put it anywhere he wanted to. Uh, he has been optioned to, uh, Tacoma as well, which, um, I think we kind of all expected. I feel like there's not, not really a, a bad reason to do that. Like send him down there, get him right. You have other arms, uh, that I would like to talk about actually, um, Evan White was recalled in this as well. And then Anders Munoz is placed on the 15-day IL with deltoid strain. So now we're going to see a little bit more of Justin Topa, J.B. Bukowskis, who uh, blew the save earlier in the game. Didn't blow the game, though. Uh, I don't know. The bullpen will be fine. But what I've seen from the other bullpen arms is tough Munoz is on the IL this early in the season. Uh, deltoid strain, discomfort, it looks not like precautionary. It seems like he needs a rest, but 15 days will probably be more than enough to get him 100% coming off the I.O., which is, you know, it's fine, it's whatever. Um, I think, I think J.B. Bukowskis will stay on the team. They're right, for right now, especially with Munoz on the D.O. and Festa optioned, because although he might be on a short leash now. You could tell in the game today, Sunday, you could tell his stuff was there. You could tell he has reliever-type stuff. Uh, He just struggled a little bit. He left some of the pitches over the plate, a little bit of command issues. Um, I I think he will be fine, to be honest. We're not going to ask him to do super high leverage stuff like that in the past. Plus the guy has not thrown him, you know, in major league baseball um, because of injury in not quite two years, but like 21 months, I think 20 months. And they stick him in and a super high leverage, high leverage, extra innings save situation against the lineup like Cleveland and he, and he blows it, but doesn't ends up getting out of the inning. And you, you could tell there was flashes. It's like, oh, no, some of those pitches look nasty. But then also you gave up, you know, someone, you know, you give up the lead, you give up a couple runs. It happens. I think um, we'll see more of him. I think he's going to be one of those guys like potentially Festa who will who will jump back and forth from Tacoma to, to Seattle based on a need basis this year. You can see why he's in the bullpen. You can see why um, they picked him up. I mean, the stuff is there. So. Uh, we'll see. It's just one outing. It's just one outing. He hasn't pitched in 20 months. He got thrust into a uber high leverage situation. Uh, let's not, let's, let's pump the brakes on him being terrible. Let's see in his next few outings what he gives us. 
and then another Mariners debut today was Justin Topa. Justin Topa looked good. His stuff similar to Bukowski's, and I was not aware that Justin Topa had this shit inside of him, but um, filthy. He's got filthy stuff. A lot of movement on that um, on that sinker. Uh, I think he seems like he's going to be a good piece in that bullpen, and he, you know he he pitched fine today in another high leverage spot as a debutante, but looks like a good bullpen arm. Uh, got him from the Brewers in the Colton Wong trade, and he looks like he is going to be just a solid innings thrower out of the bullpen with filthy stuff. So. Um, another one to keep an eye on in his next few outings to see, um, what else we can, we can see from him early in the year, but going forward, I think he looks like a, a solid contributor out there. Him and Trevor got both, uh, the new, new bullpen arms in the, in Los Bomberos, as they like to call them out there, both looked pretty good. So, uh, I think the bullpen depth is, is definitely there this year. Um, cause with, even with Munoz out, you still have, um, high leverage guys with Seawald and Brash and even Diego Castillo to an extent. And then, yeah, like Topa looked good today. Will he look good tomorrow? Who knows? But, uh, I, I think the bullpen depth is fine. Um, but it was, it was encouraging to see, uh, a new bullpen arm like Topa come out and start firing just kind of filth, man. It, it was filthy. Uh, Matt Brash still filthy. We knew, we we trust him. Still very filthy for Matt Brash. He did blow the save today, uh, but also part of that was a potential defensive miscue that I talked about with Teoscar Hernandez earlier. Uh, but that that was my bullpen notes. Really, it was the what did we see from Topa and JB Bukowskis uh, today specifically, just because they made their debuts today in a tough loss, but. Uh, the bullpen will be fine. Uh, again, the bullpen depth is there. I think they have plenty of decent arms in Tacoma right now, even with um, more guys potentially hitting the IL. I think they'll be fine. They'll be all right. But uh, we can move on to other MLB stuff. Uh, the Mariners, besides Munoz on the IL uh, to wrap up Mariners stuff, um, Evan White recalled, so we'll see Evan White up in the... Seattle Mariners uniform yet again. Um, I didn't even mention this on last week's episode because it happened um, like right uh, before it recorded, I want to say. Robbie Ray hit the IO with a flexor strain. So with Robbie Ray hitting the flexor strain IO, we'll see the flexing strain on the mound for the Seattle Mariners a little bit more uh, while he's on the IO. Munoz hits the 15-day today. Um, doing more. Looking like he'll be back um, when they begin the homestand on the 14th. They have a homestand from the 14th to the 23rd. And it sounds like he will be back at some point during that homestand, which is very encouraging stuff. That potentially means less Cooper Hummel slash Tommy LaStella um, getting at bats slash defensive reps. That'll be that'll be good for the defense too, because Dylan Moore plays a good outfield and and middle infield, so happy to hopefully get Dylan Moore back uh, in the next week, in two weeks, sometime during the next homestand, which is good. Good stuff. That's it for the Mariners, though. I'm done with the Mariners. They go uh, to Chicago starting tomorrow, three-game set, then have an off day, then come home for that homestand. But what's going on in the MLB? Uh, I don't have much stuff really to say. Um, in terms of, I'll, I'll talk about the pitch clock, obligatory, um, couple minute pitch clock discussion, uh, multiple broadcasts I've noticed have gone to like when an inning ends, the, the broadcast little, little, whatever scoreboard, uh, goes to like middle, you know, seventh or end seventh, uh, after they get it out to end the inning or something. Right. I've seen multiple broadcasts now. Um, going to the middle inning or end inning prematurely. Uh, because it's it's happened multiple times where it's like a ground ball, um, not necessarily routine, but like the ball beats the guy to first, but the the first baseman doesn't make the pick, um, or the throw's bad and it, and it's an error. But the whoever is operating the scoreboard on the screen goes to the middle or inning or the end of the inning, and and uh goes to basically wrap up the inning from a broadcast perspective, even though there was an error and now the inning will continue. 
clearly in an effort to get um to get ads in like as soon as they possibly can because of the increased like pace of play so there's there's not less commercial breaks but there's less time for commercials right so seeing multiple broadcasts have to handle that and note like it's it's pretty noticeable when it changes um to middle of an inning uh because they also sometimes there's things in the top right or top left hand corner that tell you what channel you're on depending on where you're watching the game locally right and those disappear and then it says middle sixth or end sixth uh and it's like oh nope nope there is an error the sixth is still continuing uh, i've seen that multiple times i just want to say that here which is pretty funny uh broadcast clearly still getting used to the pitch clock and they're aggressively trying to fit in as many ads as they can with the new pace of play i mean they're they're fitting in ads mid at bat mid um after a bats now like a guy will strike out they'll be like real quick 30 seconds and then by the time you get back a pitch has been thrown or something it's 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 tough uh, but broadcast clearly are still getting used to the pitch clock so that's something um a couple more things uh the Tampa Bay Rays they are 9 and 0 um they look great i mean i was very high on the rays coming into this year um in my preview of that division when i was talking about the rays uh i want to say i picked them to get second but i wouldn't be i wouldn't have been surprised if they if they won the division i just think no one this year coming into the season was talking about the Rays at all. And that's bad. That's bad for baseball. When everyone has hype about how good the Rays are, like now, it feels like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. It could happen. Now it's, you know, a little bit more likely now that we've seen what they're doing. But like there was little talk about the Rays coming into this season um, from a major meteor perspective at the very at least, right? Uh, and so it, it was it was panning out to be a I think I said it in the preview, a raise type year where they could just go and win it all after I haven't seen anyone pick them to win it all prior to the year. The talk of the American league was the Astros and the Yankees. And you know, the Rays are just there. Uh, the Rays are there and they're always lurking. And clearly, like I said, in my preview of them, just being healthy is huge. Like this team was so hurt last year. Um, and Glassnow's not even back, but their offense just being healthy. Like Wander played hurt all of last year, uh, ended up playing like 90 games, but was hurt for a good portion of the games he played too. So he just didn't look great. He looks fantastic starting the year. Uh, Brandon Lau, they got back, looks great too. And I think um, they needed a couple of their young hitters to actually start putting together decent um, stats and decent production. Like, Vidal Brujan, uh, Taylor Walls, uh, guys of that persuasion, you know, like your, your Luke Rayleigh's who's been good to start the year. Um, cause top down the signup's really good, but they need like that extra kind of, oomph, you know, um, but fully healthy this this lineup is good. I mean, Brandon Lau is great. Wander Franco is great. Randy Rosarino is awesome. Luke Rayleigh has been great to start the year. Like Isak Paredes, um, a guy who started the year really well, another young guy in that category, Josh Lowe as well. They needed like a couple of those younger guys who they, who made their debuts within the last year or two start to finally like put together decent MLB seasons. Um, and so far it's looking like they're getting some good production out of those guys, which is huge. Like that propels this team to be, um, how good we've seen them. Uh, and I think Passon tweeted it out today, but after their win today, uh, they're the first team since 1884 with a run differential of more than 50 over their first nine games. Uh, they were, they broke some crazy record. Like they're the first team ever to win like nine straight games to start the year by four plus runs. It's crazy what they're doing right now. And yeah, yeah obviously they're playing the Nationals. Uh, the A's and the Tigers. And it's like, those might be the three worst teams in the league. Um, but those two things are not mutually exclusive. Like the Rays are playing insanely good MLB leading baseball right now. And also have played probably the three worst teams in the league or three of the worst teams in the league. Uh, but they're nine and oh, and have crushed those teams in that time. Their offense looks amazing. Their pitching staff is legit. 
Um, coming into the season, I'm pretty sure I, I, I said, and you can quote me, I'm not worried about their pitching or their bullpen. Because even if they have injuries, it's the Rays. They'll call up some, like, Jeffrey Springs, like Jeff Springs, who they just re-signed this offseason. Before that, if you asked any casual fan who Jeff's, Jeffrey Springs was, most of them probably wouldn't know. But he's shaping up to be a, I don't know, Shane McClanahan type Rays pitcher where it's like all of a sudden, oh man, this guy's really good. Who is this guy? Uh, but the offense is healthy to start the season. And if they can be healthier than they were last year, sky's the limit with this team. Um, they've kicked the shit out of these, these basement dwelling teams. But again, that that's what you're supposed to do if you're better than them. And we see in baseball all the time, like the best teams in the league lose a third of their games every year. Uh, the best teams always lose to the worst teams. It's baseball. That happens. Like you can't pretend you, you can't say you watch baseball and, and know that like the winner, the favorite of every game, there's a good chance they lose that game to the worst team in the league. It just happens. Uh, and the Rays are playing out of their mind and we'll see how long they can continue this win streak. Uh, Cause it's been really fun too. They've just been crushing them, like hitting dingers all over the place. It's been awesome. And that brings me to uh, another topic briefly. The balls might be slightly juiced again. Uh, so we saw in like 2018, 2019, the balls were on steroids. Um, everyone was hitting 15 plus home runs. Uh, it was basically a foregone conclusion that baseball writers um, have had so many baseball writers researched and came to the determination that the balls were definitely juiced. And then the past couple of years, we've seen it kind of fall down to earth. Like pitchers numbers have, have, have ticked up quite a bit. Um, and pitchers had started winning over matchups again because they probably reverted the balls back to normal. And this season, the ball is flying a, uh, quite a bit for this early in the year. Up from this time last year, not nearly as much as like 2019 at peak juice ball era. So I, I mean, this is all, a th- you know, conjecture, but like, I think the balls are slightly juiced again. I think they changed them a little bit in the off season. Uh, there's something on Savant with, which is, which is like, is it Savant? It might be another website, but, um, it's like a, a an average like carry of the baseball, like how far it carries on average compared year over year. And the carry this year is up a little bit. And it's pretty noticeable. There's been some home runs where it's like, wow, I don't know if that would have been a home run last year where a guy just kind of doesn't connect, doesn't barrel the ball, but it it goes out just over, just barely over the wall. And it's like, man, that looked like a fly ball. Uh, I don't know. Keep, something to keep an eye on, and I'll be keeping an eye on that all year. And I'm sure more intelligent, actual like baseball writers um, will. They've already started talking about it. I'm sure they'll dive more deep when we get more uh, quantitative statistics to try to figure this out. But keep an eye on that. Balls might be a little juiced, a little juiced. And then, um, uh, watching the Marlins, Jazz Chisholm in center field, the experiment. It's going. I feel like as well as they thought it would. Um, he's made a couple cool plays. He's looked uh, not completely out of place out there, but then like I was watching him the other day and he just took an absolutely garbage route to a ball in the gap. Um, gave up two bags when it could have potentially been an out or just one bag if he took the right route and cut the ball off. But um, he looks like he, again, he doesn't look too out of place out there. I think some of that is just because he's so athletic that he just looks like he could be a decent outfielder. So I don't think it's going poorly. He's got some errors. Again, he definitely takes some interesting routes to the ball, but it looks like they're going to stick with him for the whole year out there. And like taking a good route to the ball is, it's not all about reps, but it's a lot about reps where you start learning how the ball um, comes off the bat, you start learning the better routes to take. It starts being muscle memory. And, uh, I think that'll come with time, but he's definitely looked a li- like he's looked a little shaky out there at times is all I'm saying this season, but other times he's made good plays. It's been, it's been as well as you'd expect it. It's been, I feel like the Marlins probably expected a little bit of good, mostly baby steps out there in center field. And that's kind of it for the MLB. I don't really want to. I don't really want to touch on much else. I mean, 
Anil Cruz got hurt today, which really sucks. Um, like the in that Pirates game today, they got in a little bit of a tiff at uh with the White Sox at home plate. Like Anil Cruz slid in, and Sebi Zavala, the catcher, um, I think wasn't too happy about O'Neill Cruz the way he slid in, um, kind of awkwardly kind of taken out Sebi a little bit. Um, and it looked like Sebi said some shit to Cruz and then the benches cleared. Uh, the benches cleared all while O'Neill Cruz was, was clearly hurt. Uh, he fractured his ankle, which I don't know how long he's going to be out, but that sucks. I'm assuming 60 day IL, right? Like for a fractured ankle, I feel like it has to be 60 day IL. Uh, that stinks, man. That stinks a lot. I want to say, I want to want to say that that just sucks. Um, ugh. That, 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 that's that. Grayson Rodriguez, he made his debut for the Orioles, number 12 overall prospect in baseball. Uh, he looked, uh, he looked fine. Threw against Jacob deGrom in Texas, and he looked fine. He looked, uh, all right. He got some strikeouts. He gave up a couple runs. I mean, he looked, he looked all right. And then, uh, what else happened? Did anything else happen? Yeah, more baseball. But there's nothing else specific I want to talk about, um, Shohei looks great. Mike Trout looks great. Aaron Judge looks great. Uh, Ronald Acuna, he looks great. There's a lot of good players looking good still. Uh, and before I sign off today, really, um, man, the Angels can't screw this up, right? I mean, they're having a great start to the year. Like as a team, they're they're fine, but but Trout looks still fantastic. Shohei looks fantastic. Can can they screw this up again? I feel like that is probably going to be the biggest storyline of the year is how can the angels miss the playoffs again uh, before they lose Shohei for good. Uh, But with that, I'll leave you to it. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, Let's keep the, the Mariners vibes going this week. Let's go to Chicago. Let's get a series victory. Let's go home for long homestand and, and give the home fans a little bit more to cheer about than what we did in the uh, in the first home stand. Ah, come on. Uh, but thanks again for listening. I will see you later. I hope you have a good rest of the day. And go Mariners.